Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by William Adkins, a former teacher at Dallas ISD, Dallas Independent School District. William has recently retired and he is currently journaling his transition into retirement on a blog interestingly titled My Negative Split. With a wide range of interests, including running, hiking and travel, William has recently returned from completing the Camino de Santiago. Hello and welcome to the show, William. Thank you. Great to have you on. Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, actually, I'm currently in Dallas. Uh, I'm not sure if I told you this or not, but I'm actually in the process of moving to uh, San Miguel de Allende in uh, Mexico. Before we talk about your sort of transition into retirement, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, please, and, and your life's journey and when you decided to retire? Well, uh, actually, uh, education was 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 uh, not my first career. Uh, I um, uh, when I was young, I decided that uh, I really wanted to be a- an artist. Uh, and um, as far as careers, uh, I, I, there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, planning to it. I just knew that I felt like I wanted to, uh, you know, be making art and expressing myself in that way. And and um, and the, the uh, ideas about how I would actually earn a living uh, weren't really uh, at the top of my mind. I, I just wanted to pursue self my, my my artistic um inclinations and so i i, I uh, worked my way through uh art school uh but um during the um last year of my undergraduate studies i um uh had I'd made uh friends with a lot of other uh young artists and we were doing some exciting work and 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 um people were uh wanting to find a venue for, for the work. In fact, we were doing these little pop-up uh, exhibitions here and there, uh, and um, we were getting the attention of uh, some local critics. And um, so um, there was some thought about finding a permanent uh, venue for um, uh, the exhibition of our work. And so it, it was then that I uh, founded a not-for-profit alternative exhibition space for this group of artists uh, and myself, uh, and uh, I, I was a director there for uh, uh, three years, but uh, in the process of doing that, uh, I realized that, gosh, uh, I didn't really know anything about organizing a, a business. <laughs> and so uh, at that time, uh, I had just um, I'd finally finished my um, undergraduate degree and was thinking about graduate school. And yeah. um, it made sense that. Um, you know, I would look at a, a, a master's in um, arts administration. Uh, and um, so it turned out the closest uh, campus uh, that offered a master's in arts administration was a little bit uh, further away than I wanted to commute. Uh, I had recently bought a home. And uh, so uh, I had to find someplace within a, a reasonable commute. So I did find a, a campus, uh, Butler University in Indianapolis, so I coordinated with their their MBA program, uh, do all of my elective studies in arts administration as I earned an MBA. So <laughs> my first career was actually as an arts administrator. I did that for several years. Actually, my whole career uh, is, is, is really sort of um, uh, reactive, uh, not really very proactive. Uh, I, uh, I sort of uh, 
responded to a number of circumstances like, you know, I never imagined myself being an arts administrator or, or definitely uh, getting an, an MBA. But the situation sort of led me in that direction. Uh, and so uh, my planning really hasn't been much planning at all. It's just been more responding to uh, the circumstances. But um, yes. another response then, I uh, found myself um, uh, needing to relocate to uh, Dallas for a couple of years. This is after several years of being an arts administrator at, at several organizations. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll just look, uh, move to Dallas uh, for a couple of years. And I thought, you know, the easiest thing to do is just get a job teaching somewhere. And that's what I did. Uh, and that was uh, 20 years ago, uh, uh, thinking that it was going to be two years. But I, I actually found uh, the uh, student population. This is uh, inner city here in Dallas. Yeah. Uh, the first school that I taught at had a, 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 what was to me a very interesting uh a student uh, population of uh, approximately 90% uh, Hispanic. And then most of the other 10% was uh, African-American. And I found that um, really interesting, especially the, the, the Hispanic students was something uh, being previously from the Midwest, I didn't experience a lot of, and they were really interested in, and, um, and I was teaching uh, art at that time. And, um, and they were doing some interesting, you know, uh, street art, some graffiti. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I was re- really became interested in, in, in these students and ended up uh, staying um, longer. Well, also another really important factor was I ended up just sort of getting a, a Fulbright fellowship. Uh, I, I mainly um, just applied for this fellowship as a way uh, to kind of get the uh, get a little bit of clout. I, I had previously had been actually executive director at, at an arts center. And, um, you know, I, I was had a position in a smaller, much smaller town than, than Dallas. But uh, I was in a situation where, you know, I was in a leadership role. And uh, I was, uh, if I needed to talk to a superintendent, uh, you know, I just tell my assistant, hey, I need to talk to the superintendent. And and uh, by the end of the day, the superintendent would be calling me. And then as I uh, uh, started working as a, a teacher um, uh, in a large urban school district, uh, I realized, well, I wasn't just a teacher. I was I was just an art teacher. Uh, and so I was having difficulty uh, just getting an assistant principal to answer an email after uh, being in a situation where the superintendent would be calling me, uh, you know, up on my request. So it was really frustrating to me. And uh, so I decided that uh, what I, uh, I I saw this opportunity to uh, get a Fulbright, uh, you know what, if I got a, I got a Fulbright, maybe that would get, get some attention and maybe they listen to something. So I just sort of on a whim uh, applied for this Fulbright thinking, well, I don't really have much of a chance but uh, as it turned out, I ended up getting it and, and traveled to uh, Japan. Uh, and um, so, so, um, just a, just a quick question: Did you say an Albright? A full Fulbright. A uh, Fulbright. Yeah, Fulbright. It's a uh, it's a it's a fellowship. Um, what was what was the name? It was uh, started by a senator immediately after uh, World War II. Yeah. Uh, I think his name was James or John Fulbright, uh, okay. senator, and he decided that you know uh, World War II was was not really a very good thing <laughs> and we should try to avoid having another uh yeah. and uh you know he thought you know if people from different parts of the world uh from different backgrounds actually started talking and communicating to one another that you know it would help um you know we would find out that we actually have a lot more in common <laughs> than yes. we do. uh 
And uh, so he he started this program. And, and most of most Fulbrighters are actually graduate students or at least uh, university students coming from other countries to the United States to study. But yes. there are lots of different types of Fulbright programs. Uh, there's like for uh, uh, American journalists to travel abroad and American educators. And so this was uh, a Fulbright uh, for American educators. Yes. Uh, and this was actually a little bit different kind of a Fulbright. It was one that was done in collaboration with the Japanese government. Uh, yes. And uh, I later got another Fulbright to go to Senegal, which was a more traditional uh, uh, Fulbright. I, I'd spent the summer in Senegal. But anyway, I'd gone to Japan. Say something really interesting uh, happened when I returned from Japan and started incorporating my my experience into my, my lessons. I was talking about lots of Japanese culture, you know, uh, origami, uh, Pokemon, and, and, and all the yeah. things that, the, the, that my young students would, could relate to. Uh, and uh, there was a young girl in my class. Uh, I believe her name was Priscilla. She was like a, a ninth grader, one of the younger students. And she had this really puzzled look on her face. And she raised her hand. And I said, yeah. And, and she looked at me uh, and she asked, uh, you can go there? And I I thought, of course, you know, why why would you ask a question like that? And, and it took me a while. I don't think I realized it immediately. But um, thinking about that odd question, uh, and wondering why would she ask it? I, I I came to realize that these young students and, and here I am teaching in in the inner city of, of Dallas, and these are yeah. students. All of my students are on free or reduced lunch, um, socioeconomically disadvantaged. But despite that, almost every young person these days has access to, to technology and, and even their own smartphones. Um, but they uh, have all been uh, online and on the internet, and they they've all this young girl clearly had 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 you know, done a lot of, uh, seen a lot of things about Pokemon and other Japanese cultures on the internet. But, uh, but she also realized that a good portion, uh, if not uh, most of what she sees on the internet, on the internet is purely virtual. And I came to realize that she didn't realize that Japan was an actual place uh, you know, on the internet or TV, things like that. And I, and I thought, oh my gosh, this, this, these kids, you know, how can they see the value of their education and all the opportunities that, it, that, that a good education can provide if they can't see beyond a few blocks of their urban neighborhood yeah. and realize that they're actually part of a global community with uh, all sorts of opportunities. And so uh, that's when I really started uh, globalizing my own classroom, uh, presenting lessons and, uh, thing, and things like that that would uh, give uh, my students a global perspective, started, you know, introducing things like uh, environmental stewardship into um, my lessons, uh, which, of course, is a, a, you know, a global topic. And was this something quite unique? Um, were, you, were your colleagues doing similar things, or you know, the other teachers, or is this something quite unique to what you were doing? Uh, in terms of consciously globalizing, I think it was fairly unique. Uh, yeah. And in fact, I was just sort of hacking it. I was doing the best that I could. And uh, the very next year, I ended up getting an international teacher's fellowship by, offered by Toyota and went to Costa Rica. And then it was that following year that I got my second Fulbright uh, and went uh, spent the summer in, in Senegal. But I was just really sort of hacking it. Um, yeah. And didn't really understand. But then a few years later, I ended up and by this time I was at another campus. Um, I ended up getting another what's the, an IREX fellowship uh, um, run by the, the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Department of State 
um, Department yeah. of Education. And, and it was specifically for educators wanting to uh, learn how to globalize their classroom and uh, help build global competencies uh, within their students. Uh, and yeah. with that program, I actually uh, went to uh, Morocco for a while, but that was actually a year long program where I did a lot of um, study here uh, in the States uh, for about nine months before I ever went to uh, Morocco. But that program really um, gave me a lot more to work with and, and, and also sort of validated uh, a lot of the stuff that I had been doing, but, but it made it possible for me to really, um, you know, pick up my program. And, and, I, and then at that time I was at a different campus. Uh, the campus that I retired from was actually in, uh, it's within the uh, same uh, Dallas uh, school district. Uh, but it was sort of like a, an experimental uh, all boys school where we had uh, all young men and we were setting it up, even though we were in a, still a public school, we were uh, going under the assumption that we, we ran it like a parochial school uh, for, uh, and with the assumptions that if we, we treat these um, young uh, men um, that don't have the advantages of other young men as though they, they were those <laughs> other young men and with the same expectations that they would rise to the expectations. And uh, the, the school has indeed been very successful, but yeah, I've, I, well, that's how I, I really transitioned. And in addition to, in fact, I started teaching because of my MBA, I actually started teaching uh, some business classes in, in uh, global business along with my art classes at this school. Uh, and so um that sort of like took me up to um, uh, at least it, it was it was a big part of my identity as an educator. Uh, I um, I've always considered myself an artist, first and foremost. And whenever I did all of these other things in order to earn an income, you know, I always considered that secondary in terms of my identity. And I consider my, myself an artist uh, and a similar thing as I. And so as I started teaching art, I've I've always considered myself uh an artist um you know who's who's teaching uh and um and so a similar thing happened um as i developed my identity as an as a teacher and i started um globalizing my classroom that even though i was teaching uh mostly art classes at that time my identity as an educator really became more uh in terms of, of building global competencies uh, within my students. Yeah, so it sounds, it sounds like your, your sort of um, the talent for art and, and the teaching art and learning about art and everything was like a stepping stone to be able to, to do this, uh, as you've just said, the, the uh, making young people, enabling young people to sort of think a bit further outside of Dallas or whatever about, yeah. about the world. Yeah. It was almost like a tool for you, yeah. the art. And, you know, that really, I think, in terms of retirement and careers and all that stuff, I think that's indicative of really how I've defined both my career and what I hope to define my my retirement as is just finding a sense of purpose. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I think that's really um, has been the key for me. So um, I, I was I was reading your blog, which is very interesting, your journal, um, and you, you've got this mantra, negative split. Uh, could you just explain that to listeners, please? Yeah, listeners, well, please. you know, I'm a lot of things, uh, you know, a teacher and, and, and uh, artist and all this stuff. But uh, I also um, am part of the running community 
here in Dallas and I guess the writing community, you know, globally. Uh, is, that, is that long distance running? Uh, yeah, uh, I've run a, a few marathons and, and actually that was one of my goals uh, upon retirement was to uh, run another marathon. And the term negative split uh, means that the last half of your run is faster than the first half. So you, you, in other words, finishing strong. And I thought, yeah. you know what, that, that, you know, that, that phrase that relates to running also could be a, a, a good uh, theme for my retirement since it's, yeah. you know, I'm, yeah. I'm in the last lap, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah. And, and it's also got quite a positive spin in, in as much as, you know, it, it's all about sort of doing better in that second half as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what was your, you retired, was it earlier this year or last year? Uh, yeah, actually, it was uh, my last day of teaching was uh, was in May of, of this year. Oh, okay. Okay. So what, what's, your, what's your perception of retirement before and after? How, how has it changed? I know it's early days um, at the moment, William, but how, how has it changed or if it's changed? Well, it actually, my the whole idea of retirement was something that I'd been thinking about for a while. I was actually eligible as far as my teacher's pension and, and I think to retire in, I think as early as 2016, I think it was, I could have retired, but, um, you know, I told myself that, you know, I wasn't going to retire because it's, you know, I've always had this strong sense of purpose, you know, and I thought, you know, I, I'm not going to retire until I, I know what I'm going to do, you yeah. know, after I retire. And, um, so I didn't really worry about it, uh, that much, even though I had become eligible for retirement. Um, well, I, and then, you know, 2020 came, <laughs> And, uh, you know, that 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 year came to a, a really difficult end, you know, with the with the COVID-19 and and uh, we left for our spring break uh, that year and, and didn't come back to the campus. And we we tried uh, we finished that year uh, very awkwardly trying to do it uh, virtually, uh, which no one was really prepared for. Uh, and uh, but it was just such a. Um, you know, that's not the way I wanted to, to go out. <laughs> and because no, no. uh, I had actually been planning on uh, in 2020 to, to do my retirement. Uh, and yeah. um, but I still hadn't necessarily found that that sense of purpose yet. But I, uh, you know, early on, I thought, you know, 2020 sounds good. There was a particular student that I that uh, I had become uh, kind of close to um, early on. And I thought, uh, you know what, I, I want to see him graduate, you know, and that would have allowed me to 2020 was the year that he would have graduated. And then I yes. thought, okay, I, I can leave then. So, uh, but then when 2020 came, I thought, you know, this is not the way I want to leave. So I sort of hung in there and because I wanted to see where all this was going to go. And then, you know, 20, the, the next school year was also another really rough one. Most of it was done virtually. And then with the uh, students gradually coming back into the, onto the campus. And then, and then, you know, after that, um, most of the students were coming back to the campus, but I mean, the learning loss and I mean, everything, I mean, that, uh, you know, the pandemic hit, uh, educate the education really hard. And it, it, it really did. And we, we, uh, we know about that in the UK only too well. And, and, um, you know, I, I do feel sorry for those guys who sort of on that first year of university, yeah, they went there and stuck themselves in a, in a building doing it remotely. All they were at home. It's it was a it was a great loss, but yeah. so hopefully we've got over that now. Yeah, and then on top of that, uh, the the campus that I the new campus that I was at was also going through some some new changes, and um, 
that I felt like I wanted to have, you know, as what little influence I, I have, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to, to, you know, try to help uh, the school uh, head in what I thought was in a, a, the, the correct direction. And so all of those things sort of kept me hanging in there, but uh, to be perfectly honest, those last three years were really rough. And yeah. uh, I found that I was really sort of, you know, even losing my sense of purpose. And I felt like I, one of the really fun things about teaching was that I felt like I got better at it every year, you know, and, um, you know, I still feel like, you know, I could definitely be a lot better than I, than I was, but I kind of felt like, you know, those last few years, I was not getting any better. Uh, and, uh, not that I, there wasn't room for improvement. Uh, yeah. I've, uh, I've, ne- I've, I've never was a natural teacher. I just, um, you know, felt compelled to, to do what I was doing. And yes. I've always been kind of a, a hard worker. Uh, and so that's allowed me to, you know, have some success as an educator, but, uh, definitely I was not the best educator, uh, even on my campus, let alone. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but anyway, uh, I, then, uh, as I realized that, you know what, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm really, getting any better. Uh, and, um, I, and, but I, I really hadn't, uh, you know, this new, you know, figuring out exactly what I was going to do in my retirement hadn't really, you know, I hadn't really come to terms with that. And so that's when I decided, you know, I need to force the issue. I need to just go ahead. I went and I told my, you know, uh, principal, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm retiring. This is going to be my last year. And I I knew that, okay, now I have to figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, and, uh, that's actually, uh, shortly after that is when I actually started that, uh, blog, um, uh, negative split. Uh, and, uh, and so I decided, well, okay, so what, what do I know? And I had been traveling a lot. And so I, I, I had decided that, you know, I, I think I want to retire abroad for a number of reasons. Just one, I just like being, you know, immersed in other cultures. But then I thought um, running an air, another marathon would be uh, another goal that I could, could, could uh, maybe achieve even before, you know, I actually retired. Uh, and, yeah. and, and then I've always, over 20 years ago, when I was um, still an arts administrator, I was running a, a uh, the organization I was working for had an artist residency program, and I had an artist in residence who had been visiting. And when she was leaving, I you know I asked her, you know what, what you know what are your plans? She says, oh, I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And I had at that point never even heard of the Appalachian Trail, so I, I got was curious and I looked it up and I thought, oh man, uh, that's pretty cool. In, in fact, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the author Bill Bryson. Are you familiar? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I was going to sort of mention it actually. I, I read his book, very interesting. That was brought out about 25, 30 years ago, wasn't it? I read A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson, yeah. and I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. Uh, and so I um, and uh, so I sort of got obsessed with that, but I also got obsessed with just sort of like. Uh, hiking in general. And, and in a lot of my travels, I started doing a lot of hiking uh, as I was traveling as an educator and working this, all those travels into my curriculum. I, I ended up actually hiking the Inca trail twice. Uh, I went to Patagonia and, and did some hiking uh, there, uh, hiked up Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa and some other wow. smaller hikes all around the world. And I, and I thought, boy, this, this, uh, it's really a great way to, you know, get out in nature and, and hiking is, is really, 
I don't know if you've if ever done it or not, but um, yes, I have. Similar similar to running, you know, when you can sort of get out there on your own, it's a great way to meditate, you know, yeah. and and really sort of get in touch with with yourself and nature, uh, and um, and so I kind of got you know hooked on that, and I thought, boy, wouldn't it be nice to to you know get out there and actually get on the AT, the Appalachian Trail, or or the Pacific Crest Trail, or one of the other major trails, and and just spend, you know, months out there. Um, and so I, so hiking the Appalachian trail was also uh, one of three sort of goals I set for myself. Uh, and then I felt that, you know, accomplishing those goals, you know, eventually, you know, might lead me into something that really is going to give me, you know, where I'm going to find that sense. Of have you done the, I know you've just done the Camino de Santiago and I'd like to talk about that a bit later, but have you, have you done the Appalachian trail now? No, I'm I'm signed up to do it uh, on to leave on March 12th. And how how long is it? Well, it's a uh, it's about 2,200 miles. Wow. Uh, so let's see, you can translate that into kilometers. <laughs> uh, well, no, I mean, we use miles in the UK. Oh, um, you do? okay, great. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, we use we use everything in the UK. We we sort of bilingual in terms of millimeters and centimeters and feet and inches. Yeah. Um, we 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 do everything. Um, that's a long way. So how, how long do you expect that'll take? Well, I'm, well, that's another thing because as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of moving to Mexico and that's, a, that's a rather complicated visa process. I've got to finish that trail in time to get back um, yeah. to, to do that part of my, my residency. So that uh, could be a little tricky. And yeah, so, so would you, would you be doing, I mean, I know it's quite a long way, but would you be doing 20 miles a day or is that too far? Uh, that would be, that's a 20 mile hike. It depends upon, you know, there's a saying, hike your own hike. I don't know if yeah. in the UK, they have that phrase or not, but, uh, you know, different hikers do things different ways. And, you know, like on the Camino, you'll see some, some, some hikers, you know, hiking with trekking poles, some hikers actually, uh, pay to have their backpacks shipped to their next, uh, uh, albergue that they'll be staying at. That's, that's so good to me. It. And so, you know, I've, no, nobody's judgmental. You know, you do right. what you do. And, and some yeah. people will even, uh, during some of the more difficult parts, will actually take a bus. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so, um, you know, for me, that would not work out. You know, no, all that no. stuff I, I, I wanted to do do it i wanted to be sort of a purist and do it the way it was but yeah and it depends on the terrain doesn't it It depends how high you've got to climb and, well um, yeah that too hiking up. through the pyrenees was was no joke really yeah, yeah. <laughs> and well, um, so to talk about the el camino in a bit more detail um so so you've got you're going to be time bound anyway by by when you do the appalachian way but it's going to take a few months isn't it right i'm 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 guessing it's going to take me four and a half to five months and i tend to be when i was on the camino i was hiking a bit faster than most of the other uh, uh, pilgrims on yeah. the Camino. Um, I'd love to talk about the, the Camino because it's something I've been toying with the idea of. And um, one or two of the people I know have done it. And I know that, um, is it is it 600 miles? Well, there are several different Caminos. So I've discovered. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the more popular ones right now, I mean, I the, the Francais is the, the most the, the most popular. Seriously, has been the most popular. And that's why I chose that one, because that's what most people have done. And I wanted to, you know, have a you know, I, I was doing it for the experience and that was the, the most common experience. Yeah. The Portuguese route is becoming much more popular. And then uh, and also I think a relatively newer route is called the, the, the Norte, the North route. Um, and that goes along the coast. Yeah. But there are 
uh, actually, there I met people. I there was a um, I, I turn to her name. I think his name was Jonah, who was actually hiking from Switzerland. Uh, started in Switzerland and hiked all the way down and ended up being on on the, tr- the trail with me uh, for a few days. Uh, so there's lots of different ways you can do it. But the most common is starts in uh, Saint Jean Pied de Port uh, in um, in France and yeah. immediately goes through the the Pyrenees Mountains. Uh, and um, unlike the a the uh, Appal- Appalachian Trail, it's not really a wilderness hike. Uh, the the Camino it's uh, more through countrysides and through small town from small town to small town and and, and eventually larger towns so like Lyon. And- yeah, so you've got no bears to worry about. Yeah, yeah, don't have to worry about that. And and <laughs> you know you're not you know bushwhacking your way through rough terrain. No, no. Um, what sort of places do you? What sort of accommodation do you get? Well, there uh, most people stay in albergues. Some people will check into a hotel. In fact, I got uh, kind of sick along the, the trail. I, I got into some bad water, I, I guess, and, along with some other pilgrims. And and I actually checked into a hotel for a couple of days to recuperate. Uh, but yeah. uh, all the other times I was uh, in an albergue, which is like a, essentially a hostel. Um, yes. And um, uh, so that's what the accommodations are like. And here again, unlike the AT where, you know, most of the nights I'll be sleeping in a tent. Occasionally along the trail, they'll have shelters that you can stay yeah. in, which are basically just three-sided structures with a roof. Uh, so if it's raining, it's a little a little better. Um, and just for this, this one's benefit, the Camino de Santiago is, is basically replicating what the pilgrims used to do, isn't exactly. it, to end up at Santiago? Yeah, yeah I, I believe it was St. James um, who uh, – walked the you know, the distance i guess to santiago and it's sort of like um it's a, a way for you know um the pilgrims to i guess affirm their faith if they happen to be catholic uh and um and do that follow the paths of saint james even though there are different paths what, what, are, what are the most popular times of year to to do the trail uh i believe uh early i i started a um a little bit closer to the summer. A lot of people try to avoid the summer because of the heat. Uh, And and a lot of people will start, I think in May or late April. And I think the weather conditions are are a little more accommodating than uh, I was still teaching in May. So uh, I essentially, that's sort of like once my retirement was sort of like, uh, you know, um, my starting point. I just, it was literally just two or three days after uh, my last day of teaching that I was off to, um, hiked the, the Camino. Um, so I started uh, in, um, I think it was June 6th, actually, was when I actually started uh, from St. jean pied de port And it took me, it took me about 30 days to get to Santiago. That's a good good progress. I know, I know some people sort of six or seven weeks, isn't it? So that's good. Yeah. Uh, but then you can also, uh, you, you also have the op- option of hiking on to uh, Finisterre which is yeah. through the, the coast and which I decided, you know what, I'm going to do that too. Uh, and so I did that. And so that added about three more days uh, to my hiking. Uh, and so, um, yeah. And so I think it was maybe closer to 500, almost 600 miles total then when you added all that in. Well, I, I, I was looking at some of your videos, some of your YouTube videos, which you've got on the blog, and, and we'll put your blog, if you don't mind, on the show notes so that people can have a look. And, sure. Um, I particularly encourage people to have a look at those videos because they, they're quite quite interesting. Yeah. So um, what types of people did you meet on, on that walk? Oh, all types of people. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and you know, people hike the Camino for different reasons. For me, it was, it was like that, that threshold, that transition into my retirement, you know, okay, I'm done with this part of my life. In fact, there's a shoot, I forget what they're, what they call it, but there's a place where there's this, um, tall pole with a crucifix atop of it. I can't remember the, what they call this thing, but there was a, there's a mound of rocks at the base and it was a place where people will bring things, photographs of loved ones and other little trinkets and things that they will leave there as a, as a portion. So I, uh, my last day of teaching, you know, I, cause I had been doing a lot of research and I heard about this place and I thought, well, what, what am I going to bring to leave at this place? Uh, and, um, I was just out there standing where I, as, uh, as students were coming in and out of the building. And one of my duties uh, first thing in the morning was to stand out there to make sure that, you know, things go well as buses are unloading and parents are dropping off students and things. And I just happened to look down and there was this little plastic little thing that looked like a could have been a little piece of like candy or something, but it was a, just a clear plastic thing that really meant absolutely nothing. And that had probably fallen off of somebody's clothing or backpack or something, you know, and it had absolutely no meaning uh, as far as I was uh, new, but it was something that I'd picked up from that campus. And I thought, you know what, this is what I'm going to leave there. And when I, when I leave it there, that will be my official leaving that part of my life behind and heading off into the, the new part. So that was my, there's a lot of symbolism to the, yeah. the, the trail that people bring to it. Uh, and so there was lots of different kinds of people. I met a, uh, um, a gentleman from Ireland who um, I guess a survivor, a brain cancer tumor survivor. Uh, and uh, he was hiking, you know, um, uh, and in fact, uh, that first night, I, I, I stayed at uh, an albergue, which was just a short walk from um, St. jean de port because it's kind of an al- al- iconic albergue. It's called Orison. And uh, I'd seen that in a lot of other people's videos. So I thought, you know, I'm going to spend a night there. Uh, and, and actually, it was kind of nice because that first day hiking up the, the Pyrenees, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a challenging hike. Yes, uh, I bet. And, uh, it, and it was... Um, so I stayed there the first time, and that and and there uh, is where the the pilgrims sort of meet each other for the first time. Uh, and um, in some cases, there was there was a case of one couple that I actually all the way through to the end kept kept seeing. Uh, yes. And uh, but to see some uh, meet meet people the first time, and so that's where people would share, you know, who they were, you know, what their backgrounds are, and what you know what has brought them to the Camino. And so lots of people shared you know, a, a lot of the things. And, and if you've watched any of those uh, videos, you know, people will share. Uh, it's a, a common theme is that they've lost a loved one and they're wanting to um, just sort of like deal with that. And um, so, yeah. <laughs> so there's all kinds of people, young people. Well, there tends to be uh, a lot of young people that are <clears throat> maybe just finishing college, college or maybe they've just um, finished their secondary education and getting ready to move on to college and wanted to take, you know, the summer off to hike the Camino before they start their college. So it's a lot of younger people. Uh, and then there's a lot of people that, you know, they've like me that they've just retired. Uh, and, and so they've got, they've got the time to do it. Uh, but there's people really of all ages and all backgrounds from all over the world. Uh, there, uh, the Camino seems to be uh, particularly uh, popular with people from uh, uh, South Korea. Now I met a lot of South Koreans um, and um, people travel or hiking with family members. 
Um, well, an- another thing, a lot of people will hike the Camino, but they won't do the entire, they'll just do a section of the Camino. Uh, yes. so I met some, I met, um, I met, uh, a woman from, um, really interesting woman actually, um, from, um, Barcelona. She, um, is a, a doctor there and, uh, she was just hiking a section from Abergos to uh, Leon and, um, uh, we actually spent a couple of days getting to know each other and walking together. Uh, and she was really interesting. Um, and then there was another uh, woman hiking with her two sons uh, who were, she uh, She was actually from the United States, but moved to Spain with her two sons. And was They were living in the south of Spain. And she was just hiking a small section with her two sons. And, you know, I hiked uh, for one day um, off and on with, with uh, the three of them. Yeah. Uh, and so there were all, like I said, all kinds of this, this fella from, from Switzerland. Uh, I started off the first week or so, if you've seen my videos, the, the young couple um, that were uh, beginning their graduate studies uh, in, in the States were about ready to start uh, and, and spent a lot of, lot of hiking time with them uh, early on, uh, which was convenient for me because he was, uh, had the, 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 a uh, young man uh, actually grew up in Spain and and uh, spoke uh, fluent uh, Spanish, so that made it uh, a little bit easier as I was picking up my Spanish. Uh, it was helpful. So it's, it sounds it sounds like although a lot of people, although you know a lot of people do the actual trip, so no, not everybody, but but a lot of people do. There's a good a good community thing where where you sort of meet up at night, change stories, and and sometimes walk with others. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, but then, I mean, there's also plenty of time when you're you just have uh, some nice alone time, you know, especially early on. Now, the last uh, once you get um, uh, what's that town? The, once you get into the last hundred kilometers to uh, to officially have done the Camino to get your certificate, you have to uh, have hiked at least uh, the last hundred kilometers. And so, once you get to that point you see a lot more people <laughs> and, and that was something a little bit kind of hard for me to, to deal with. Uh, once it started happening, especially the very last day, I, you know, I felt like I was in Disney world <laughs> because of yeah. the crowds of people. Uh, and, um, but um, because I really, even though I enjoyed the time that I spent talking to the friends that I met and, and hiking with them um, sometimes for the entire day, I also enjoyed, you know, the alone time. Um, and um, there was a lot less of that during the, the last hundred kilometers. Yeah. Yes. So has the has the experience um, changed you? Have you learned anything since having you know accomplished the Camino? Well, I mean, I I I feel like I'm a lifelong learner <laughs> anyway, and I'm always sort of changing and adapting to you know what's what's put in front of me. Yeah, I I, I in, in fact in my my vlogging I you know. It's, it's, try to, you know, talk about some of the things that I learned. And, um, yeah, I'm, I tend to be kind of, uh, because I'm so, you know, I'm all about a sense of purpose and, you know, getting something accomplished and things like that. I tend to be kind of a type A kind of person. And, and I'm very conscious about how long time and how long something's taking. And, and, um, but the, um, you know, in Spain, you know, uh, in the United States, when you go to um, walk into a store or a restaurant or something, rather you sort of expect to be greeted right away. And if you, if you're at a restaurant, you expect, you know, to get service right away and, and do everything to happen promptly and, and 
right away. But but my experience in Spain and and it's been this has been my experience in other countries as well. Uh, you know, it's a lot more laid back, and you can um, and and just because you sit down at a restaurant uh, and you're not greeted right away and um, things don't happen immediately doesn't mean it's, uh, you're not getting good service. No, it's no. just a, another way. Of, and I found that, you know, those opportunities to just sort of sit without the clock ticking, uh, you know, I found that I had opportunities to talk to people at, sitting at, uh, you know, the table next to me and, you know, having good conversations. And then, you know, in the States, you know, if, once you've finished your uh, appetizer or your salad, you know, you can, you know, you sort of expect the waiter to be there immediately to take that dish away and set your, your entree in front of you, you know, uh, and that, that may or may not happen, you know, <laughs> in Spain and, and other countries in, in Spain. Uh, but one thing I did notice that a lot of times when I would order, you know, um, my vino tinto, uh, my, a glass of, uh, or my, my red wine, a lot of times they would actually bring out the bottle and set it there at, at the table. And so that made it a lot easier <laughs> when I was waiting for my next course. Yes, I bet, I bet. No, that's that's. <laughs> yes, well, so, heck, yeah. So you, you were almost not forced, but, but you were encouraged to sort of make the most of the present moment. Yeah. And then, well, another thing that I talked about was, um, you know, when you're in retirement, you're, you're at the end and you're sort of like, you can, you can, you, you get a lot more, your mortality is a lot more real to you, you know, mm. as you, as you get to, to my age. And, um, and so there's a sense of urgency because of that. However, you want to make the most of it. And something that I discovered you know, when when you first have that sense of urgency, you thought, "Oh gosh, I gotta go. I gotta get as much out of you know, you know, accomplish as much of my bucket list as I can before I, I yeah. kick the bucket." And um, but uh, I, I sort of discovered that you know what, to really get the most out of life, you, it, it helps to slow down a little bit, you know, yeah, and and really take it in, you know, um, you know, really experience the bouquet of the wine you know before yes. you get first sip you know and if we've got any listeners that are coming up to retirement or, or even perhaps you know quite a few years away what what sort of because you you obviously had had this sort of plan in your mind for quite some time but you you were sort of accelerated a bit with covid but what 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 are the top things that you think people need to think about before they retire Oh gosh, I think everybody's different. In fact, I it's sort of been my motto. I I, I I try to avoid giving advice and I and and I, I prefer to just share my perspective and my experiences. Yes. And my so I, I you know, I can tell you what my perspective is, but that might not be what somebody else's is. And a lot of it I think in terms of retirement, how you deal with your retirement is how you deal with how you dealt with your um work. Uh and and I'm, I'm one of those people, you know, who will often, uh, I often say, I don't think I've worked a day in my life, you know, and it's yeah. because of that sense of purpose that I've always had. I've always yeah. felt compelled to do what I've been doing, even in these really maybe some more mundane jobs that I had as I was working my way through college, you know, it was, that was all part of the college experience. And so, you know, I was a waiter, I, I'd been a waiter, you know, and, you know, the restaurant industry was rough and that's tough work. But it was part of my college experience. That was what I, that was what was making, you know, the other part of my days when I was in the classroom uh, possible. And so I really didn't separate uh, 
that from, you know, my college experience, all those, the different jobs that I held working my way through college. And then uh, as an artist, you know, I've always considered myself an artist and, 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 you know, artists never retire. So <laughs> in that sense, I'm, I'm still not retired. I'm looking forward to um, really being actually much more productive in my studio now that I have, don't have these other obligations. Yeah. But, and, and I know that, that this podcast will be listened to a lot of people who are at that point and, and either have retired or are thinking about retirement. And, and I, I personally don't, I mean, I, I retired in quotes last September, but I, I've never liked the word retiring. I, I prefer to think of it. I've sort of left corporate life. Yeah. Um, which I enjoyed, I have to say, um, but I want to do more. But I, th- I think what you're sort of really saying is it's very much an attitude of mind that you've had throughout your life and you're just carrying on, but in, in a different way. Uh, yeah. Um, but I know that there, there are other people that, you know, have a different, not that they don't have a sense. A lot of other people, I, I, I don't really have a family. Uh, at least I'm, I'm not married and I don't have any children. Uh, yeah. And uh, for a lot of people, um uh, in fact, you know, maybe most people, that is their sense of purpose, their families. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, good for them, you know. Um, and in fact, I've had, as I've traveled and I've vlogged, I've, I've occasionally, in fact, as I was on the Camino, um, uh, a young woman that I had actually gone to high school with expressed, you know, how impressed she was with what I was doing and all, all, all this stuff. And I, and on, I, I would, see her on Facebook or Facebook friends and she would be talking about her family a, a lot and things like that. And, um, <clears throat> and so I replied to her how, how impressed I was with, uh, you know, the family that the, the, the amazing family that she had and, and all those things. And, and she was, she had sort of expressed that, you know, some regrets that she wasn't able to do a lot of the things that I was doing. Uh, but then, yes. you know, I tried to tell her that, you know, you know, she's doing a lot of stuff that I just don't have the opportunity to do. Yeah. Uh, the people that have families, I think retirement to them is a lot, might be a lot e- easier because all of a sudden they get to really fully immerse themselves. If they've been, you know, if they, if they've been the breadwinner and they've been, you know, leaving home early in the morning, coming back late, exhausted and going to bed, uh, you know, immediately and haven't, you know, maybe, you know, once or twice of this, you know, a year, you know, take a little vacation with, uh, with their families. Um, that's, you know, I, I'm sure that they really long to spend more time with their families. And so retirement, you know, gives them, you know, those opportunities. So yes. I think to them, retirement is, is, is something completely different than what, you know, my retirement is going to be. So, yes. Yeah. So um, what would be your, message to anybody who is thinking about retirement and they're coming up what would be your main message to them well here again share my perspective (laughs) you know embrace you know find a sense of purpose and 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 embrace it um and uh you know have fun you know um and in fact my my the title for my my youtube channel is uh, you know i'm not dead yet uh and in fact that's in reference to a monty python reference i don't know you, yes, you know, yes. <laughs> not good yet. Uh, and, and so that has sort of been my theme in my retirement. In fact, that, that, that first day in Orson when people were, were, you know, they were asked to say, well, why are you hiking the Camino? That was all I said. Well, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> so uh, that was my reason for hiking the Camino. Well, William, this has been a really interesting conversation. I, I'll put the uh, link to your site on the show notes so that people can, can have a look at those 
videos and read your journal. I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much, William. Okay, thank you. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I will be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best. Thank you.